When we started this series, we began with a conversation on health equity. We spoke about disparities facing minorities, women, and veterans. However, what was missing from that conversation? The disparities facing sex and gender minorities, or SGM. SGM includes, but isn't limited to, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, and asexual individuals. They face a whole host of healthcare disparities based on a lack of understanding or even outright discrimination. To help discuss these disparities, we spoke with Dr. Kabita Mishra. Dr. Mishra obtained a fellowship in transgender surgery and medicine from the Cleveland Clinic and currently serves as a clinical assistant professor at the Stanford University of Medicine. Our conversation with her after the break. Consumer experiences, major disruptors in AI tech are shaping healthcare for years to come. On Hello Healthcare, we dive deep on these issues with leaders who are driving change. I'm Chris Hemphill, VP of Applied AI at Actium Health, and we hope that these stories will help you to create or demand a better future in healthcare. So when it comes to, to this particular topic, the reason that we're excited to have you on board is you're working directly in this field. And it was really awesome talking to you about your career and motivations on taking this particular path down medicine. Really just excited to, to start digging in and just taking in context that there's a lot of people in, in leadership or operational or patient engagement positions here. And a lot of what we can learn here can help identify like outreach patterns and, and ways that we engage our transgender and non-binary populations. So with that, would you mind sharing just a little bit on your background and what's got you interested in the focus on transgender medicine? Yeah, absolutely. I guess I'll go back to, I did a lot of my training here in California at UCSF. And then I also did residency and fellowship at Brown on the East Coast. And I really, like my primary interest has always been pelvic health. And I just, I love pelvic anatomy and I love as part of that taboo topics and reproductive health. And I got very interested, especially while I was in San Francisco with taking care of transgender individuals and really wanted that to be a part of my career in the future. But it wasn't an, a straight path. You have to find your own way and training actually in pelvic surgery and realized that I was starting to see more and more transgender patients and felt it was a great opportunity for me to really connect with a patient population that I've been wanting to take care of for a while. And so I had this opportunity to do a Transgender Surgery and Medicine Fellowship. My primary focus is going to be doing vaginoplasty surgeries for transgender individuals, but I have some training in hormone management and a whole other host of things now. So that's what got me into the field. I really identify with people, individuals who may have a history of trauma, and I feel like a shepherd in a way when I'm taking care of them. And I really appreciate having that role in people's care. That's fantastic here, especially I used a word, the word taboo, which if something's taboo, there's just a lot of people who there's these issues, this, this set of things that we could be t discussing that just don't make it to the table because it's for whatever reason, like there, there's social mores against, against talking about it. I feel like that's 
hurting awareness, that's hurting this conversation to where a lot of the recent research and a lot of the recent papers, especially like when I approach things, it's going to be from a uh, data perspective and a lot of the recent research on like how to even capture information on sexual orientation and gender identity. A lot of that is come is like from the past 10 years or the past six years. Hugely thankful about that focus on those taboos. And that kind of leads me to a question with those taboos and, and with the fact that there's a lot of recent discussion. There's a lot of people who might not be aware of the issues impacting sex and gender minorities. What are some of the key disparities that healthcare leaders should be aware of when addressing this, this group? Oh, there's several. And there, a lot of these facts make hurt me personally when I hear them because I'm part of a system that is not welcoming or has not historically been welcoming. And so we know that a third of transgender individuals, they don't seek any preventative health services, a quarter report having bias experienced in prior encounters with the healthcare system, and a fifth have reported actual refusal of care in their past, which, you know, when you think about how many individuals that that is, I find that very disturbing. And even within OBGYN, there is hesitance to take care of transmasculine individuals. There was a study that asked academic OBGYNs how comfortable they are caring for transmasculine patients, and only 30% felt comfortable. And actually 11% said that they were unwilling to perform routine pap smear tests, despite those being the guidelines with transmasculine individuals. And I see all of that information and I think, wow, we We are lacking in education sorely. Where does comfort start from? Well, it comes from being exposed to and taught. It comes from self-direction as well. And so we need this combination within healthcare of educating ourselves personally, but then also making sure that we educate those around us. We really need to keep in mind. And of course, like the higher rate of violence, victimization, physical and sexual assault, harassment, bullying, hate crimes, interpartner violence. Unfortunately, these numbers are painful to hear about. And I think that these are the things that, yes, they get some attention, but within healthcare, I think we need to, to be much more directed and focused about addressing these. Thank you. And I think that addressing it from a healthcare perspective with the backing of the healthcare system, with a lot of the things that you're doing at Stanford and in terms of education about these topics, that's a a beautiful place to get started and hopefully start wearing down those taboos. Mm -hmm. Are there significant geographic differences when you're looking at where these disparities exist? Do you see significant differences in location? I don't know if we have the evidence necessarily to say that specifically. I think anecdotally and from expert experience, yes, that is true. I think you're going to get better care where people have educated themselves and are marketing themselves as taking care of sexual and gender minorities. So I think in that sense, having preventative health services and those experiences, I think logically would be different. But I don't know if we can say that with the data. Okay. And curious about the data too. You had told me about a project. One big issue, one big challenge with the taboos and and the mores around this is that like there's not, in a lot of cases, there's not a huge amount of data out there. But you told me of a uh, friend. Yeah, Betty Malover. She's very well known in the field of studying sexual and gender minorities. She and Mitch, who are their two physicians at Stanford, who have a very large NIH-backed study where it's a, a national 
study of sexual and gender minorities and their experiences in different topics. So it's a very large survey-based study, but it's it's been now around for several years. The information they're publishing from it is tremendous. I feel like you could go to the NIH website, look up their study, which is the PRIDE study, and you'll see like incredible number of citations because they are starting to ask the questions of the population. What are you experiencing? What is it looking like? And what is your experience in healthcare? What are the health outcomes? These are questions that for the first time I feel like are being addressed in a very large, expansive manner. As we focus on care for transgender individuals, what's included in that? Does that include things like the call center experience or other avenues where using correct names and pronouns and engagement and things like that? I feel like the way we do it right now is a little bit backwards because we start from the place where we are doing the care and then expand out to address, okay, where does the patient encounter in our, what is, who are the people and the locations that the patient faces at my clinic? for example. How do I make my environment welcoming? How do I educate my staff? And okay, I interact with this department and that department. So now let's educate that group of people. And then, okay, the patients who are interacting with that service, it's like an in-to-out approach where I think it would be very different if our approach was as if a patient was calling the main line of the hospital. And I, I think that's the part we do. We start with the advocacy to make sure that our patients who finally get to us are comfortable. But I think we're not doing as great of a job as going top down and all around. The question in particular talked about call center teams. And we work on that for like my practice or my clinic or the group of clinics that are taking care of sexual gender and gender minorities. But we're, we're not doing that as expansively as we should. Like when someone calls the orthopedics office, I think this is gen- definitely a weakness. There are more things in our medical record systems that are helping. There are areas to, you know, get patients sexual orientation and gender identity information. Their pronouns are listed more prominently. Their preferred name is listed more prominently. So I think that integration is there, is getting there, at least on the medical record side, but the personal education we need to work harder on. That is huge. And and that really strikes a chord because there's, even with the medical records issue that you brought up, I know that Epic and Cerner, they, they both have adjusted the fields that are available to match with some CDC guidelines around collecting information around uh, sexual orientation and, and gender identity, which I find is commendable, but it's not just the data that we have to focus on. Now that those fields are available, we have to make sure that we're collecting them in the right way and in ways that people are comfortable sharing and educating our teams all the way, like from top to bottom at the leadership level and all the way on down. There's a proper acknowledgement and understanding of, of mm-hmm. what the implications are here. Mm-hmm. And using them. Unless you're looking for it, unless you are attuned to it, you may not notice that's even, there's so much information now in patient charts. I, so I frequently had to, you know, tell people, okay, you hover over here and then this thing shows up, it's a worksheet and you can do that and you can actually change that, that education. Like it's almost like a new feature shows up and no, no one has good knowledge about it. When we talk about the experiences that people have had, like having been denied care, or working with people that don't acknowledge them or aren't even willing to perform routine and necessary medical procedures, that 
really wounds the relationship. You're, you're talking about how a lot of people don't even seek care because of the anticipation that they're going to experience that, those disparities. And it seems like there's a rift being created every time an incident like that happens. So what should leaders be focusing on once they learn, once, once there's an, an understanding of, the, of these differences and disparities? How can healthcare regain that trust? Gosh, we have to do better on so many fronts. These general environments that patients encounter, emergency rooms, operating rooms, primary care offices, have to be a lot more welcoming. The suggestions that I've seen out there from other experts in the field are things to have the LGBTQIA Bill of Rights posted, all gender bathrooms instead of gendered bathrooms, all these general things that we can do just as patients enter the space. Flags, pins, badges, things in the windows, something that kind of signals to an individual that you will be safe here and you are welcome here. So if we can do that both physically and online, I think that would be really helpful. I feel worse for patients who are older because they've experienced all of those hurtful things over and over again by our field. And maybe only in the last five or 10 years have these environments actually focused on being more welcoming. And so they don't have the knowledge or experience that things are changing out there for them. And I feel terrible about how traumatized they must be from their experience over so many decades. I do think that in that sense, that's where our primary care providers come in more and more. Not necessarily that they have to provide all the breadth of hormone management, but be really willing to ask the question, are there any services, particularly for transitioning, that you'd like to access that I can refer you to and make sure those questions are always asked at every encounter. And I think we need to do a better job of reminding everyone we take care of people. We don't take care of young person or a, an African-American person or whatever it is. We don't take care of subsets of people. And so I feel like that focus needs to be really there. Like, How do we remind everybody in our field that we're having human interaction every time we talk to someone. It's a really vital path is, especially at the individual level when delivering care, you almost can't acknowledge anything else, but this is a person, they might fit into a particular subset and everything like that. But all of the nuances and all uh, everything about that individual comes into play when you're dealing on an individual basis. So I think that people can fall into that trap mm -hmm. of say patient data, for example, Patient data is, it's not a spreadsheet. It's its a collection of different things that were tracked during an encounter, but yeah. data represents an instance when somebody is trying to better their healthcare or perhaps mm -hmm. have their life saved. And, and we, we have to get away from this big aggregate view and understand that like, yeah. these are, yeah, I love that. Yeah, I agree with that too. What kind of topics are overlooked by audiences? You know, what's really interesting that I find now is that there are assumptions made about gender minorities that they are seeking, that they're always seeking medication or seeking surgery. And I feel like what that does is it forgets the breadth of experience that individuals have and the, the breadth of desires that patients have. Not everybody wants hormones. Not everybody wants surgery. Not everybody wants the service that you've created. They should be offered the ability to get there. But I think there's now maybe where we focus too much on what does this patient want in terms of surgery or medication. I think all a patient really wants is what 
problem they're coming in for to be addressed and to stay healthy. So I think we may be getting into the trap of assuming what someone wants more now. And I I don't know if that totally makes sense the way I'm describing that, but I think that's where some of the pitfalls are now. That does resonate if there are surgeries and medications available and like people are coming in, but we're only thinking about them in context of those specific offers Mm -hmm. rather than just Mm -hmm. their total experience. There's another question about how care for transgender teens and tweens differs from care for transgender adults. Yeah, huge differences, mostly because I actually think pediatric teams have done a much better job of treating the patient and the family and the schools very holistically. So I think programs are doing a much better job of involving social workers into their care, family therapy, mental health providers and access. At least my experience at Cleveland Clinic and Stanford have been that way, where there's engagement with all the individuals that encircle a growing teenager tween. And unfortunately, we don't do that as well on the adult side. But the reason for this is just how impactful this is what you're shaping an individual at a time when it's there where so many pathways are being created self-confidence self-acceptance how they approach the world and i think really smartly a lot of programs are engaging everybody that surrounds the patient teachers parents siblings friends and i think that advocacy there on the mama bear side and on the pediatric side is really commendable. So I think there's an approach there that I really appreciate. So that's in ways that things different or differ. Maybe you could say that the reason why the engagement is so high for parents and everybody else around is because they need to be on board and consent. And so if you're going to have a healthy kid or a kid that's making the right decisions for them, you're going to need approval and consent by their guardian. That, that's the ways in which things are different. It's a much longer process, intensive process before a child, understandably, gets put on puberty blockers or hormone therapy. And then definitely we don't consider surgeries until age of majority, which is age 18. You brought up an interesting point by discussing the parental involvement. I didn't know what to expect in that answer. I wasn't aware about some of the progress that's been made on the pediatric side. But one key element there sounds like there's built-in advocacy for the patient, which is the parent. So that person has their back. Curious, just with what you're seeing on the pediatric side, are there learnings that perhaps the, the adult care side can take from that and start using to improve their own practices? Yeah, I think we need to put our money where our mouth is. If we're trying to take care of a complete individual and then we silo them into all these specialties, there's patients can either get lost or feel overwhelmed. And I think we do need more social support, social work, therapy support, all of these things. These are incredibly hard for patients to access. It hurts me that we have these standards of care and insurance goes along with them that for surgery, patients require two mental health letters. And to get two mental health providers, some patients are sometimes in locations where 
mental health is access is so limited or individual uh, mental health providers who are comfortable taking care of sexual and gender minorities that those people are limited or just financial access. I've had patients tell me I can't afford to see another mental health provider right now. And we're, it's a requirement for insurance to get coverage for a surgery. And so we put up these barriers in some way. I understand why a standard exists and we really want to make sure that a patient is you know, healthy both mentally and physically before going through a surgery like this and they've got that mental health support. But then sometimes things feel like checkboxes and we're forcing people through a system that is actually really challenging. If we're going to require that a patient needs all this mental health help, then that should be included in, in our insurances or that access should be much better. So yeah, I, there's a reason why most patients wait so many years before they get the care that they've been wanting. Just highlighting the, the overall impact of the system and how a lot of, if you need all these steps, these check marks, et cetera, but the access to them is disjointed on top of the issues that you brought up earlier, such as uh, discrimination, it just presents these giant walls to people accessing the care that they need. So we've been talking about that at the system level, but I'm curious about your work in, like with somebody who had felt actively discouraged from receiving care. Could, could you talk about the type of experience or how they respond to that and how that impacts those people? Yeah, the, most recently we, I had a patient who whose letter was going to expire. Before surgery, we ask that patients undergo hair removal if they want a surgery where we use skin to line the vagina. And so they have to undergo either electrolysis or laser hair removal. And that whole process can usually takes about eight to 12 months. And sometimes the patients, I'm not going to go through hair removal until I found a surgeon and I know that I'm going to get a surgery. So we get into these crazy time loops. So in order for the patient to actually see the surgeon, we ask them to make sure that they have their mental health letters ready. Basically, we want to make sure your mental and physical health is is stable before you come see the surgeon. Okay, so we're going backwards, right? I'm telling you like immediately what a patient needs for surgery is to have that hair removal. Patient feels, why should I undergo this right now if I'm not going to be scheduled for surgery soon because I need to save up money for hair removal. And then the surgeon says, well, I need your mental and physical health needs addressed before you come see me. So that means we get letters uh, from mental health providers. Okay, but you have something like COVID or you have family things occur, you have financial access become an issue, a patient has these letters. And now it's a year, maybe six months to eight months later, they finally see the surgeon. The surgeon's, okay, you're on my schedule. I can do surgery for you in six months. Guess what? That letter, those letters that they initially got for mental health now are going to expire because they're not going to be dated within one year of the actual surgery date. So the patient then has to go back to these mental health providers. You'd hope that they had been able to continue care with the mental health providers this whole time, but they haven't because there's financial limitations to being able to continually see a therapist or, or psychiatrist. So now the patient feels like in order for them to get surgery, they have to go through the check mark of seeing the mental health provider again and getting updated you know, letters or dates on their letters. And so all of this kind of feels like I am mentally stable. I've got ment one mental health support 
person who can write a letter and all this stuff. But now I have to go to that second person because of this checklist. And so we just had a patient go through all of the the craziness. And it's not that the patient has had ever done anything wrong in the beginning, but we're making them go through this process multiple times. And that that part, it I wish I could just say, no, it doesn't matter. We have these letters. You don't have to pay all this money to see that second mental health provider again. No. Instead, my hands are tied. Insurance is requiring that these letters be within a certain amount of time of surgery. And we just end up in these time loops. So I, I feel like for patients, it's so frustrating. And for us as well, because we're, we're really literally doing check marks. Yeah. What you're presenting is a really stiff and rigid and complex system. And it's the physician and provider side. There's the frustration of knowing what the next steps need to be, but why they're inaccessible. And then on the patient side, absolute and utter confusion. I'm curious, given all those complexities, given all those challenges, if somebody is if somebody's going to have an experience within the healthcare system, if you were talking to a patient about how they should navigate their care, what would be your advice to them? Usually I always tell somebody to have someone with them because I think uh, the amount of information a patient receives sometimes is so much. And there's and when you're listening to either what is required of you or what you need to define important, as a patient, these emotional things hit and you may get distracted. <laughs> I think like even I feel this when I'm seeing a doctor and they're recommending something and I'm thinking in my head, how am I going to do that? And in that much time, I have lost some of the information that they're continuing to say. And I know this sounds so simple, but I really do wish that pretty much every patient had another person with them. And it's got to be the right person. It's got to be the person who doesn't make them anxious, doesn't angst up or create extra energy in the room that can be distracting. So it's just, that's probably my number one thing that I tell anybody who's accessing the healthcare system. Have another person there with you, a second pair of ears, or ask the physician if you can record the conversation, we, you have that, you have that ability. If I find myself comfortable with that, maybe not all physicians would to be recorded and then have something that you can point back to at a later time. But I think when we're doing the same things over and over again, it really is probably help, more helpful to the patient to be able to either reference or have someone else listen to it. Those kinds of things. And to see how tedious that is in terms of resources for a patient. No doubt. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt is the, the first part of the answer hinged on having an advocate, having somebody there with you that has your back. And when you mentioned recording the conversation, that's an interesting approach to it too, because I've heard about a lot of technologies nuanced and they got bought by Microsoft, but focused on recording and transcribing uh, conversations for documentation mm -hmm. purposes. Mm -hmm. But what about doing topic analysis and, and things like that, that, that allow patients to access recordings. Yeah. I think the other thing I tell patients is use their advocacy networks to find the local community advocacy groups to get a sense of what's available in the community and who might have the experience to hold your hand through the process or be a mentor for you. I think that's also important. There are a lot of resources out there. Most cities, most communities do have LGBTQ centers. And so there, there are people on the ground already doing the work can be accessed. I mean, 
There are other barriers to that too, but I tell people you're not alone on this path. Many people have forged this path before. In fact, many people in your community, like right here physically to access those resources also. Yeah, it's hugely important for people to not feel like they're having to struggle alone. And a lot of times people might encounter an issue or that they blame themselves for or blamed on something completely personal and then find out just from, oh, I've experienced that too. Mm-hmm. A couple more questions just related to the fact that we were talking about like a lot of the recent research around this or a lot of the recent lifting, not lifting of taboos, but the fact that we're more willing to talk about this kind of thing right now. How would you say the the quality and availability of healthcare services for sex and gender minorities has evolved over the past decade? Oh, it's evolved tremendously. It's in, it's Thankfully, it's on the radar and a priority for every major medical center, pretty much. And I think that recognition has taken too long, but it is there. And so the fact that we have leaders who are hiring physicians to address these disparities and take care of patients from this lens, I think that has made a tremendous difference. And then people within the fields reaching out to one another to be able to create either centers, which are which could be networks of offices, not in the same place, but just as an organizational level centers. I think that has really changed the game. I think the marketing of these services, better websites, I think that has changed things dramatically. I think patients now can really Google easily can they can search easily now hormone therapy transgender health my city and see what's around or see what's around within four or five hours and access virtual care maybe they only have to see that individual that physician once a year and then the rest of all their visits can be virtual i think all of these things have changed the game a lot for patients and what they can do and how they can get care. And that's so recent, right? Virtual health was pretty non-existent two years ago, and now it has really opened doors. What about virtual medicine has benefited this avenue of care? Oh gosh, so many things. From the surgeon side, being able to do consultations with surgeons across the country, you can get a list of providers that your insurance will cover. You can reach out to surgeons and call their offices and find whether they take your insurance. And then you can have a virtual consult and really get a sense of what kind of rapport can you build with that physician? Do you trust their system? Do you, how, you know, can you get all your questions answered? Are you the focus? I think those are, that's been very important to patients who otherwise they would have to fly somewhere or drive long distances, get a hotel room and then see the physician at the physician's convenience, the surgeon's like an 8 a.m. appointment. That's an incredible barrier. So at least getting through the door and getting into the system is much easier. For hormone therapy, the same thing. A lot of patients may live in small towns where they don't have a primary care doctor who's comfortable doing hormone therapy, but you could see somebody three or four hours away who is, go there once a year to get your physical exam and then otherwise do labs, virtual visits to discuss symptoms etc. You can then have kind of this um, balance of in-care and virtual care, which I think is is awesome. So I, yeah, I think virtual care has helped tremendously. Now, I wish we, one of the limitations that I feel like as a provider is you're limited to take care of patients within your state based on what license you have. And 
so the consultations really are consultations in that sense. So, yeah. So the consultations are like across state lines. And I've seen this before where somebody finds out maybe during an, an, a virtual consult that somebody's across state lines. Yeah. I'm really thankful that you shared a background on the disparities here, what the impact is, and went all the way down to that, to the individual level, but then shared a lot on what's happening, what are some things that we can support and the different things that we, that we can do or focus on or support to create a better future. And for me, it was a really good learning experience. I really appreciate that. And just as a final thought, I'm curious, there's a reason that you came in here and talked with us. I'm curious if there's any kind of final thought or anything that you'd like for this group to just take away? Yeah, I think you can't wait for someone else to tell you to take care of this population. You have to do it yourself. And I think that you have to be attuned to sexual and gender minority patients are the people around us and they are us. And I think we don't do a good job of keeping people in mind when we create these systems. So I think that's probably the main thing I would say. Talk to your colleagues about whatever you heard during this conversation that rang true to you or that you could empathize a patient going through. Because I think we, we just have to keep that empathy there as we are in this field. Definitely important. Let's focus on keeping that empathy alive. Let's mm -hmm. focus on that topic that you brought up uh, way earlier is that people need to be educated. Part of the reason we're doing this is because you're providing education to med students and, and people coming into the healthcare system. With that, Dr. Kavita, again, really appreciate you joining us. Awesome. Thanks, Chris. Thanks again for tuning into Hello Healthcare. If you like what you heard, we appreciate a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You and your feedback fuel us. This conversation is brought to you by Actium Health. To get the latest on what these healthcare leaders are saying, subscribe to our newsletter on hellohealthcare.com or join us for our weekly sessions on LinkedIn. Thanks, and when we see you next time, hello.